Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Brian Berenger. We're at his home in Dundee. It's February 26th, 2021. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get you rolling, why wine? Why grapes? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I've been watching some of the interviews, so I, I knew this question was coming, and I've been trying to think um, how to answer this, this, this question, why wine? It's a simple question with I think, a lot of complicated, complex answers. You know, some of them are very straightforward, and some of them are more complex and winding. Um, I don't know which one I'll fall into. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so how to say this, um, I just thought that I would just be completely open and, and honest and, and straightforward <laughs> in, 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 this, in answering this question and, and see how we, how we go. So, I mean, why wine? Um, I think looking at wine culturally, like what, what is it um, in terms of historic, historically and culturally, right? Historically, you know, we needed it. Um, now it's a luxury product, right? We don't need it to survive. Well, we think we do <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was used to purify water, basically, right? And that's basically how the groups, Greeks moved around and the Romans moved around and basically created these inroads that kind of connected Europe and they brought wine with them out of, out of necessity, right? So, and this is kind of our, our heritage and as, you know, wine expanded throughout, so it did its integration into ceremonies, into re, um, religious and became, you know, for, for special occasions um, and, and basically grew, grew out of that. So in terms of, it's a European or or Western culture, um, it, I think it plays a, a important part in, in, in that. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of my personal culture, I, I grew up in the South. Um, there's not a lot of grapes there. I was more tobacco, <laughs> tobacco land. Um, but we we had wine in our house. It always came out for for special occasions, um, and that's kind of where I, I think I associated it with, with special occasions as a as a child or as a, mm-hmm. as a young adult. I never really bought it my, myself, <laughs> um, more or less because I couldn't really afford it, uh, especially um, you know, in, in high school and in, in college. But, um, but yeah, it was always there. So in terms of culturally, I feel like it, that is a part. Um, but, but yeah, I think I'll, I'll come back to this kind of it being a luxury product mm-hmm. and, and its, its status in our society and um, you know, especially in, in climate change or in, in a changing environment. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, my first experience with, with vineyards and wine, personally, you know, outside of that, um, was actually I took a trip to South Africa and I stayed for about three and a half weeks with a friend of mine. Um, I didn't, I don't think that they thought I was going to come actually, but I bought a ticket um, and I was, you know, 20, I think at the time, um, in, the, in the late 90s. Uh, and I went there and, um, and we took a trip to, to Stellenbosch, uh, which is beautiful and out there trying this this drink, this um, wine that um, I had kind of forgotten how good it was, or I guess I hadn't matured enough to realize how, how good it was. And the area was, was also extremely beautiful. Um, but that was all kind of pushed down and, and overshadowed by the poverty and the inequality and, and just the violence that, that I saw um, in South Africa in, in that time. Just, um, you know, not, not too long post-apartheid, uh, you know, a lot of shanty towns, um, a lot of, a lot of um, let's say assaults um, on on people just for just for money so people could could survive you know um, and and that kind of really shocked me um, 
as well as that was, I think, my second time out of the country. The first time I, I went to visit a friend I met in high school in Japan, that's a whole other story. And that also kind of opened my eyes, turned the whole world around, you know, Asia, Asia, is, everything was different than, mm -hmm. than, than, than here. Um, but yeah, so that, that issue of wine kind of stayed there in the undercurrents, but I was really more, more shocked by, by, by the poverty. Um, but I moved on, you know, as a young, young man, you, you think about career and, you know, you graduate college and I had a few internships in, in California, um, working for a small pharmaceutical company that got bought by a bigger pharmaceutical company that got bought by a very, very big pharmaceutical company. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how I, I ended up, ended up in a, working after college in a pharmaceutical lab. Uh, I did graduate from a small college in North Carolina in biology, um, basically microbiology, and I went and worked in a lab in, in San Diego, California for a year. Um, and I agreed, great money. <laughs> I was close to the beach, it was, it was nice, but there was just this kind of nagging um, weight on my ethics, <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so to say. Um, and I, I hate, I mean, everyone knows this, and I hate to say it very straightforward, but of a lot of pharmaceutical companies, helping people's health is second to making money. Um, and that's just not what I, I believed in personally. Um, so I, I did that, um, but at the same time, there was always this kind of nag, and I, I was having a lot of philosophical thoughts about what do I do and do I continue with this or, 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 or not. Um, I also wasn't very happy in, in San Diego. I'm in a completely different culture to the South um, as, as well. People would say maybe they're not as friendly. <laughs> um, but anyway, nothing against people from San Diego. I met some great people in, in San Diego. Right? Um, but, but yeah, so I was telling a friend about that and she said, well, you know, my aunt is, um, is looking for, for someone to work in, in Thailand. Um, it's remote. Um, but they need someone they can't find a, a local person you want to go and they'll pay your your airfare and your um, And basically give you housing and pay you a local salary. And so I said wow great. I, I've been to Thailand once before uh, I did a, a Semester in Australia um, as well in, in college. So coming through I, I went through Thailand um, Just to see what it's like and I thought great, you know, I'll go back um, You know, I know the place and, and I know like Asia um, and where I ended up going was completely not like where I had been <laughs> um, before in Thailand, way on the border of, of Myanmar, uh, Burma, as they call it officially here. Um, and basically, you know, working both in, in refugee camps and, and also in villages along, along the border uh, because there was at that time a long running um, war, many, many wars in Myanmar, one of them was on the border there. So I, I just met these amazing people, they're just amazing farmers um, and basically who had gone through a, a tough time and if you've ever seen people hit by or who stepped on a landmine it's not a pleasant thing um, and there was a lot of that you know the Myanmar army basically lined the whole borders with landmines and kids would step on them and, uh, there wasn't really proper medical care also so a lot of um, what you would think of an amputee um, it wasn't so clean cut as what we would see here, and sometimes even like the bone would just be liquidified, you know, and there'd just be flesh around. Um, that also shocked me quite, quite. It gave me a drive really to, to help people. And um, coming also from, uh, say, well, they would say a developed country, um, you get lots of questions that everyone expects you to know all the answers <laughs> to. Um, and um, basically, I thought, all right, well, you know, I I should go back to school to really be able to answer these questions and, and, and help people give them like really correct answers because sometimes I was just guessing, you know, I mean, tropical agriculture um, is very far, far away, from, removed from, from what things are in, in the south. So I, I did that for know, a couple of years and then I went back to North Carolina to, to graduate school. Um, and I had a hard time at first, you know, coming, coming back. Uh, 
back to, to my culture, to my, to my society. Um, but I did meet some people who had worked abroad, and, and that was good. And uh, I took a bit longer to finish my degree, um, which was in agriculture systems. Um, that I should have because, you know, I took time off. I, I went and did a short kind of consultancy in Cambodia for a very small farm that wanted to turn organic. And that's, I don't want to go into that story. It involves, um, it's quite long and it involves black magic and suicide and lots of other really, really crazy stuff that, that happened to corruption, a lot of corruption um, that, that caused black magic and suicide. Um, and I as well went to, to the Gambia um, as well and worked on a project starting fresh market vegetables. So a lot of the, of the vegetables brought to Gambia. There's big tourism in Gambia, from, from, especially from people from the UK. Mm -hmm. But all their vegetables were also being shipped from Spain, so why can't we grow them there? Right? Mm -hmm. So the goal of that was to start that up, so I, I took some time off, um, a year off from school, and did that. And then I came back and, and finished up, um, and then got a job in Bolivia. So I went to Bolivia, um, in Valle Grande, it's where I, I, I worked there for just a little bit over a year and a half. Um, it's also where Che Guevara was killed, so we had Sometimes you'd have huge amounts of Cubans coming, coming in on kind of pilgrimages. <laughs> um, it was really interesting. Uh, it was nice, uh, especially, you know, improve my Spanish. I, I, I learned Spanish more or less in the South um, just by my passings with, um, with migrant workers. Um, and then that really kind of helped me to, mm -hmm. to, to pick it up. Um, there's different slang there, so of course some of my slang would not relate to other people in other countries. Um, but yeah, um, I was still young then and I, I got a another call from people who I knew in Thailand that said, hey, we, we started a small nonprofit in, in Myanmar, do, do you want to come and, and run it? And I was kind of thought, no, yeah, maybe, you know, like, I'd love to go back to Asia. Um, but, you know, I saw everything that the Myanmar army did to the people um, who were on the borders, and I kind of thought, do I really want to go help them? <laughs> um, do I really want to go be involved in, in, in that? And after a lot of thought, I, I said yes, and I took it, and I, I went there. Um, this was in 2007, um, when the country was still under the very heavy military regime um, that it was. So I'm going to get back to wine. I'm going to come to wine eventually. So sorry, guys. <laughs> um, this, is, this is a great background. This is, this yeah. is wonderful. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was um, I was there. I, crazy place. Um, you know, people were assigned to me to follow me around. Sometimes openly, sometimes quietly. Um, even getting in took me quite a long time to, to get my visa. Um, and if you ever had a tourist visa, if you'd ever been to Myanmar, you weren't allowed to work there, basically. So luckily I, I had to get a second passport and kind of um, go in that way because uh, I had crossed the border once um, in Thailand over officially. Um, sometimes we crossed over actually accidentally all the time, but we didn't really know it. Um, but, but yeah, and um, so yeah, so I, I went there, um, I, I walked with the monks, uh, there was a big protest in 2007 against gas prices where all the monks came out and, and walked in with several other people. Um, and I did, some of them who I knew, um, some of them came to stay with me because they were worried that they would disappear later. Um, really not a lot of, of violence up front, but that kind of eerie um, fear because people there, they weren't taken during the day, they were taken at night. You know, so everyone's fear was of the knock on the door um, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, so, but yeah, I made some, some great friends and people would just come up and talk to me just because they wanted to talk to me. You know, like, there were very, very few um, foreigners in Myanmar at that time. Um, very, very few. Um, so much that, that there was um, a party once a month where everyone came and it was like 30 people. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a lot. There were not a, a lot of people there at that time, um, but it's nice. And I was still there running small. NGO until 2008 when a giant storm called Cyclone Nargis 
hit Myanmar. Um, I, I don't know if you guys had heard of it, but it, it came through and it basically killed around 250,000 people and, and affected around two or three million. Um, so I was there in the capital of that store. I remember coming home, I was out, I'm at a bar with a friend and we had, the taxi had to keep diverting because trees were like falling down in front of us. Um, and I, I got home to my apartment in Yangon and all my windows blew in like from the, the force of the wind. And I just was like bailing water out. And the next day, um, cell phone was out. Um, I had a cell phone. Um, cell phone, a SIM card at that time cost $5,000. Uh, I didn't buy it, I had to rent it <laughs> um, for $50 a month. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was out, power was out, everything, everything, everything was out. And no one really knew what happened um, until people started to come up from the, this delta area just south of, of Yangon. And, and we started to get word of how bad it was down there. Um, and I, I wanted to go help, I wanted to get down there, but I didn't have permission. Because at that time, you couldn't leave any of the three major towns without special permission. And my organization did, did not have that. Um, and so I, I met up on these coordination meetings. Uh, there was a meeting where everyone came together to try to think what they could do. And I met the owner, uh, or not the owner, sorry, the, the, the country manager of a German, quite a big German nonprofit there that I didn't know was big, um, called Welthungerhilfe. It's a very funny name. Um, so I, I just went to talk to her and say, you know, I know you, you are involved. I know you have permission to go down. I really would like to go down and, and help. Um, and work with you guys, you know, just, I'll just do, even do it for free, you know, mm -hmm. if, a, if necessary. And, and they went back, um, they thought about it, they took my CV, um, or they wrote down my CV, because there was no printer, <laughs> it was working. And then um, um, the next day they, they hired me. Um, and I, I didn't find out until later, but there was a long phone conversation that they had with their head office, if they could hire me. Um, one, because I was young, I just turned 30, and most of their project managers were in their 40s. And secondly, because I wasn't German, um, I was the only, I mean, the second person to be hired um, by this company was not German. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because basically all of the emails that came in to me, when I could get email, um, and the documents, uh, basically the proposal of what we had to do in our project, and also the handbook of how you have to, to manage your, your office was all in German, the whole thing. But, so I basically had a dictionary, and I translated that, and that, by doing that, I'll end up accidentally learning German. <laughs> so I'll, I'll come back to this. I, I still do the alphabet, but I can say really complicated things for some reason. <laughs> um, and, and that will play in, play, play in later. So I, I went down, um, down, ended up being on the floor of the, one of the few buildings standing. Um, they pulled staff from all the project, hired a lot of other people, and I ended up having, you know, 80, 90 people um, under me. And we were just trying to get food out, and the first thing you try to do is, is you try to, to go and um, see what happened. You know? So I went out, um, you know, we had different teams going out. I was um, in one, one team and I, I went out in, in the boats, because this is an area that's very, very flat. There's no roads. It's only um, riverways. River um, and I, we went through and we'd be driving through and um, you know, we'd hear this kind of like on the side of the boat, you know, and you go out to see and it was just dead bodies. Mm -hmm. Everywhere. I mean, I'm talking about like we drive through patches of like 50 to 100 dead bodies. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, I mean, you see it in the movies, right? A dead body has been in, in the water. But if you've really ever seen a dead body that's been in the water for four or five, six days, um, it, it looks completely. So, <laughs> a whole other story. Um, and that happened every day um, for about a week, you know, because as the, the tides were coming in and out, it would push people 
um, push the bodies around and move. I mean, not only bodies, but you know, buffaloes and other, mm -hmm. other things that, that were down there. Um, there'd be bodies in trees and in the fields, and um, it was a complete nightmare. And that, that hit me really, really hard. Um, what also hit, but what hit me a bit harder were the people who were alive. Um, it was like they had their, their soul sucked out of them. Um, we go into, into villages and you know, try to get a count of how many people were there, because the last census was done like 20 years ago. No one knew. Um, and they'd be like, there's no more children. They all went into the school and it collapsed on them. Mm. Um, so there's complete desolation, people, shelves of themselves, and we're just trying to, to, to take inventory of what's there, what machinery is there we can fix, how many people need food, um, and just scrambling. And it's just me down there with 80 people in, in charge. Um, so I, I worked very, very hard um, during that, that time. Um, I also became quite close to my staff. Um, Asian people don't really show a lot of emotion, um, but because I had a lot of people who went through that experience or young people who was their first job and first time away from home, sometimes they would just come to my office and just start crying. You know, and we'd have to talk through it. And a lot of it was, you know, what they saw, but also some of it was like, my boyfriend broke up with me or, or, or whatever stuff. Like, I miss my parents, you know, like. Um, so, so I felt this, this very heavy sense of, of responsibility um, to, to help everyone, basically. Um, and so eventually um, they managed to get people to come in, other people to come in, um, other technical experts. Um, especially things like construction or, or water purification um, that, that we needed mm -hmm. to do um, maybe about four or five months later. But it was just me every day there working late, and I did that um, without a break for, for one year, um, just every day working 15, 16 hours a day um, and not sleeping because of the work, but also because I couldn't sleep. Um, I would just wake up and, and have these, these pictures in my head and, or visions or senses of urgency. Um, so I took a little time off, um, like a little time off, took a week. <laughs> I took a week off, um, but I was still working, you know, and then I went back um, and I just did, kept doing that. Um, there's, there's long days and I couldn't sleep at, at night. Um, and basically, um, you know, I started to t try to think a longer term perspective as well on what, what can we do not only now to, you know, fix the problem, but to make things better better for them, because hunger was already a problem before. Mm -hmm. um, infant death because of poor water is always an, an issue before. What can we do? So I thought a lot about that. Uh, I wrote a lot of projects. I got a lot of money in um, as well, and just kept getting, getting bigger and, and, and bigger. Um, and I did that for, for three, three years, basically. Um, so I took breaks here and there, very short breaks. Um, and I only found out later that, you know, when at the time of the emergency, when people started to arrive, they'd arrive for three months and they'd leave. And I'd be like, well, why are you staying so short? And I only found out later that that's like the standard procedure for emergency. People, you stay for three months or not because you burn out. Um, and I did it for way, way too long, uh, mostly because I was in a, say a development. Development is slower and, and you, um, you look, take a longer term perspective. So you don't think about going for three months, you think about going for at least two, two years to 10 years. And you're thinking down the line, 20 years. Um, so yeah, I think that's why we never really thought that I should leave. Um, so I, I did that for, um, yeah, for those three years. And I, then one day, I don't know what happened. Uh, I got just an email asking a question, or I don't know, but I just, I just broke down um, in the middle of the day. Um, completely lost it um, and was almost incapacitated. And I had to be taken out of the country um, right away. 
Um, so they took me out and sent me to Germany, um, where I was, and basically they said, all right, you know, um, we'll cover the rest of your contract, uh, and you know, we'll, we'll get you some help. We recommend you go home uh, um, for a while. Um, the problem with that is that because of our, our cost of health insurance here, or cost of, of health services, the health, the very, very good health insurance I had from Germany um, covered me everywhere in the world but the U.S. because <laughs> it's too expensive here. And every time I came home, um, if I did come home, um, I would basically have to buy travel insurance. Yeah. So, where do I go? You know, what do I do? And a, a friend um, um, ended up saying, you know, I have a place in Berlin. You can, you can stay. Um, and I stayed there with uh, my the person I was in a relationship at the time, um, and then ended up starting to, to get help. Um, and um, I went through to a psychologist where he basically told me, you know, you're never going to get better. Um, you're never going to heal. Um, all, you have, all you can do is basically learn to live with this um, post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. issue that, that, that you have. Um, and so I didn't like that answer, you know, so I, I, I tried to fight it uh, quite a lot um, and tried to, tried to heal um, in many different ways. Uh, it didn't really work. <laughs> work out. Um, I bought a place there. I took all the money that I'd saved up because um, I had very little expenses um, living there. Um, and I bought a place, uh, tried to, to make a home. I thought, all right, if I have a home that's stable, then, um, then maybe I will um, somehow help me to, to heal. Um, so I did that and worked on that. Um, and you know, you have this fear as well, you know, um, will I ever work again? Will I ever be a functioning member of society again? Mm -hmm. um, can I ever go home again, considering the insurance issues? Um, or do I even want to go home? Um, at the same time, I, my relationship was kind of falling apart also because of this. Um, and I got this call, a call from my very good friend, um, Pierre Ferrand, a French, French person who I, I knew from, from Myanmar, and this phone call basically um, saved my life. And uh, I had very, very dark thoughts back there, and I wasn't sure if I was going to, um, if I was going to make it or, or not. Mm -hmm. um, and um, basically he said, I'm going home to Montpellier, France. Um, for a month, as I do every August, do you want to come with me? Um, and I said, yes, <laughs> let me get out of here. Um, so I went with him and his family, took me in, in Montpellier, France, um, just outside of Montpellier in a place called Ludebe. Um, and basically his family were farmers and they basically had vineyards. And they were part of the cooperative, as many people in that part of France are. You know, They farmed the grapes, sold it to the cooperative, the cooperative made wine and they sold it. And, and this kind of brought me back again, I mean, sitting with, with him and his family and, and drinking wine, um, back to my culture, right? My, and how important wine was in, in my culture. And it kind of gave me, or brought back a little bit of a sense of, of identity, because at that point I completely lost everything. You know, I didn't even know who I was any, anymore at that point. Um, and, and so I, I stayed there with him and I really had a really good feeling. And, uh, Worked a little bit in the vineyards, and it was it was great. You know, it was great, and I thought this is something that that I could do. Um, but um, I wasn't quite ready. I wasn't quite ready yet. Uh, I had a lot of fears. I, I needed to face. Um, I needed to get myself together, um, so to say. So I went back to Berlin and started um, eventually to look for work. Um, but while I was in Berlin, Berlin is a pretty vibrant scene. Also, Germany is the biggest importer of wine in the world, so there was lots of wine, so I started to go out and to explore um, and, and try all the different wines from different regions and really kind of fell in love with that and that kind of brought me back to, to the, the, our culture or my culture, um, so, so to speak.
So I started doing some short-term um, assignments, as well as I went to um, I went to Afghanistan, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, I went to to Guatemala as well, and then I took another assignment in, in, in Malawi, and um, I ended up getting along well with the organization, our organization in Malawi, and they um, they asked me to stay on. So so I did stay. I stayed on. Um, I had a bit of a tough time there. Africa and Asia are very very different in terms of working environments. Um, but it basically answered my question of, can I work again? You know, and so basically getting that, that there and, and working for a year um, under, again, a very, very big project, I think it was like five million per year. Um, we were, um, yeah, it, it kind of helped me recover a, a little bit. And at the same time, I'm starting to realize that um, I've got to learn to live with this thing. I can live with it. Um, I can't, I have to accept that I can't heal it, but I have to live with it and I have to start over. Um, from zero in, in terms of my, how I view myself and view my life and mm -hmm. everything. So I, um, I wasn't so happy that I was looking around here and there for other jobs and uh, um, people from the German NGO, they contacted me and said, hey, we really heard you're looking for jobs. Um, why don't you come back and work for us in Myanmar? And I thought, oh God, like, can, can I go back? You know, can I, what, what's that gonna trigger, you know? like. Um, Am, am I gonna go there and completely collapse again, or what's, or just fall back into the same pattern? Um, what what can I do? But I didn't like the way that I left and how things ended. Um, I was very close to my staff before, and then I just suddenly broke off. Um, it was very very hard, I think. So um, so the project that they wanted me to take over was run by a guy named Lothar Kinselman, and he um, he was very very well respected um, inside and outside of the of the organization, the country, they basically called him the, the Seiya Ji. Seiya is like kind of teacher and Ji is like big, so he was like the big teacher. Um, and someone who I, I talked to a lot when I was before thinking, how do I move from emergency over to development? Um, and he contacted me after that and says, basically what he said is, if anyone comes to take over the project, it's gotta be you. Um, and so that was quite, quite hard. So I said, all right, I can't really say no, so I'll go. So I went, um, took over his, his project. Uh, I tried for a while to be him as well and then realized that I'm not him. <laughs> um, and that was really kind of where that, that healing process um, started. I don't know if I want to say healing again, but that's kind of where that, mm -hmm. that recovery mm -hmm. started. Um, and I, I managed to maintain a work-life balance. I'm hooked up again with my friends from Myanmar, or my local friends who I knew from before. Um, and then I didn't work on the weekends anymore <laughs> and, uh, and kind of tried to take it off. I went through this journey of um, of searching for myself, searching for, for, for healing. And um, it took me to a lot of different places. I, I, I went way far into the forest where I managed to find a guy who still did traditional tattoos and did a lot of traditional tattooing. That's, you know, symbols that are supposed to drive out evil spirits from your body and all those kind of things. Um, I went also way, way to the borders where people weren't really allowed to go before um, because the country had opened up mm -hmm. um, and the government had changed. Um, they weren't necessarily open, but because I'd been there and I spoke the language, um, I knew how to get around. <laughs> so I went as you know, far out in places where you know, I'd see people in the forest and they'd run away. <laughs> and then I'd see them like, later like, kind of following me like, from behind, like, like watching me. You know? until, until I got to the next, the next village, um, walking and talking to the, whoever was um, to head there and stay there overnight. And I just went through this long, long journey. Um, so slowly getting better, still trying to find myself. And um, I guess the, the most important part in terms of this story is that I ended up 
being for a, mo a month a monk. Um, in, say, one of the more strict monasteries, um, doing something called Vipassana, where you're not supposed to talk um, as, as well. But um, unfortunately, it didn't work for, for me. Um, I didn't want to talk, but because I was, could speak Burmese. Um, and in Myanmar, when you have, you're struggling and you, know, you don't really know what to do with your kids, you can't feed them, you can't educate them, you send them to the monastery. Right? So I was in the monastery with all these people, and the kids, once they found out that I could speak English, I mean, sorry, that I could speak Burmese, they'd ask me like millions of questions. Like, I'd come out of the meditation time and they'd be like waiting for me. You know, like, do you have rice in your country? Or like, all these different things. But it was great, and because I, I got them, they said one day, hey, do you want to come meet my, my teacher? And I was like, all right, yeah, I'll go meet your teacher. I thought I was just going to be like an older monk, but it was like the, the head, head monk, um, and I had like, a nice conversation with him. Um, but in that, in that time, that month there of, of intense meditation, you know, from 5.30 in the morning, basically, till 7 at night with some breaks in between, um, I really found the connection um, again to nature, and I found a connection to myself. Um, I managed to leave behind a lot of things I was hanging on to. Um, but that connection to nature, and, and how nature and people are really connected, um, really rang, rang into me how, I mean, even in cities and parks, you have trees, you know, you have these things, you have this kind of life, your life is playing off of that life, and vice versa, and you're, you're influencing it, and it's influencing you. Mm -hmm. So, I came back and I said, all right, well, um, I'm starting to get a little bit, say, disenfranchised by, by development, by the international development sector, right? Um, it's, it tends to be perpetuating itself so that it can keep making money, right? We're pumping out new people graduating in degrees in international development. Um, people expect to get jobs. <laughs> right? Organizations also have people who they employ um, as careers, right? So there's basically, it's, it's a perpetuating thing. We're perpetuating the need, and the biggest problem is is us. <laughs> the biggest problem is us and the resources that we consume and our unwillingness to, to share um, and not have two cars so that somebody in another country can have a car. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, that's a bad example, but that's just, that's just the one. So, and I started to think, well, maybe the best way um, to kind of have development is to basically, you know, start something yourself and employ people, give them a good job, um, good pay, and, and treat them kindly. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to look around in, in Myanmar as the land kind of opened up the land laws, opened up. Um, where land before was, social, was socialized, so no one could own it, the state owned it. Um, but then it opened up to be privatized. Um, foreigners couldn't buy it, but it had some friends, and we went around looking, looking for land um, to start some kind of organic farm. Um, and, um, and basically this time, every, I kept going every year back to France with see my, my friend. And, and finally, you know, after a lot of thought and a lot of funny, Trips looking for land that included meeting some drug lords and some drunk lawyers and <laughs> end up in some poppy fields sometimes um, on accidents. I kind of thought, well, you know, I, I can't really stay here um, and, and make my own. I have always be dependent on somebody else mm -hmm. um, to own the land or, or to, to navigate the system. And at the same time, um, just because of my morals, foreigners over there, you're going to have to pay something to somebody at some point um, just to, to do business. Um, that's just how it is, that's how it's expected. It's called tea money there, basically. Um, you know, money. Before, I think it was just a little bit of money that you kind of bribe someone. They used to buy tea, but now, you know, it can be like $10,000. So expensive tea. <laughs> um, but so, so I, and then I, I kind of thought, well, yeah, well, I, sh I should go back. Or why not go into vineyards? Why not, why not go into viticulture? You know, um, you keep coming back to France. You keep enjoying the wine. You keep liking, liking it. Um, and then I, I had this idea that why not start something like that, like woofing, um, working for organic farms, but for people who have 
been traumatized or who have broken down, like, like you. Um, there's one thing that, that did help me in a very dark time in Berlin, um, buying that apartment was actually working on it. You know, like you keep your hands busy, but your mind is free. Um, and I never really didn't really have anyone to talk to besides um, that psychologist um, who had been through something similar. Um, I mean, he had been through something similar, sorry. No one had been through something similar that I, that I know. Um, he tried to tell me a story that bookshelf fell on his cat and then he had this like, you know, um, stress and such urgency that he could lift the bookshelf bookshelf off his cat, you know, it's like, that's not the same thing as being shot at. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so there, there really wasn't anyone. So that kind of thing, um, you know, having a vineyard and, and hopefully a, a winery as well, where people could come and, and kind of recover and, and be part of that process. Um, and then at the end, have a final product as well might, would be a good thing. Um, and in my mind, it was always, um, the vineyard and the winery are the same entity and the vineyard manager and the winemaker are the same people. Um, that's always, like, my mind, how I saw it in, in France, um, and often in, in Europe as, as well, mm -hmm. where I'd been. So I was, you know, looking online, what I do, you know, I do an internship, or, you know, and then I saw this, this program, um, Masters in Viticulture and Enology in Montpellier, and I thought, that's it. <laughs> that's it, I go back to Montpellier, um, you know, I, I, know that, I know the people there, I love the area, and so I went, I went back and, and started studying, and and um, that's how I, I ended up in wine. Never looked back. Never, never regretted. Um, I did kind of make a transition, to say when it, when I left, I saw that my staff and me and Mark were getting a little nervous. Um, so basically, I um, I made it where I, I worked one day a week remotely. That's kind of coaching for a year. Um, so I kind of kept one foot in that door while I was studying and working in, in vineyards and wineries and in France at the same time. It was difficult because I you know my working hours from five a.m. to <laughs> Till eight, and then I go to class. You know. But yeah, that's that's the the long, the long story. Um, Definitely a, a, a unique path into wine and a, and a heavy path. That's interesting. I, before we get on, I want to I want to back up for just a second. Tell me about the work you were doing on a day to day, year to year basis. International development, economics, kind of a foreign concept, I think, to a lot of people, especially to me. So tell me about what the work entailed outside of the emergency setting. What were you doing in the other countries when you went to these places for a year or for however long? What, was the, what were the projects you were trying to, trying to achieve? Yeah, so basically you try to look at what are the root, the root problems there um, that's causing poverty. Um, and a lot of them are agricultural, right, because you're, you're working in rural areas as, as well. So it might be lack of seed or quality seed, lack of money, lack of credit. You know, here you can buy a thing in credit. I bought a tractor 84 months no down payments or interest, right? You can't do that there. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then, yeah, as well as, you know, what's up the chain? What, you know, is it being processed? What's the sale? Um, as farmers are always doing raw commodities, and that's always the lowest price of anything. You know, like a cup of, cup of um, ramen noodles, you know, only 5% of that goes to the farmer of the cost, right? And that only costs, what, 50 cents, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, including the packaging, so. So we basically try to, to help with that. So we do a lot of training um, as well. We, tr we supply things, not necessarily for free, but kind of maybe on loan. So they, they pay it back um, as they earn in income and then look at linking them sometimes to European markets, sometimes to, to local markets. Um, or in the case of Myanmar, we ended up building up a big farmer cooperative that actually bred and produced seed and sold it to the country. It was the first registered um, seed cooperative, or it's not the first registered seed company, actually. Mm -hmm. In, in Myanmar. Um, we also built up a big um, women's savings and credit 
kind of like on, on point or whatever. Mm -hmm. At the end, there was about 2,000 women in there that had around $600,000 in capital, um, which is a lot considering that the average salary is around $200 per year. You know, so it was a lot of money. Um, we actually ended up teaching them computers. We made an app like on smartphones and, and things like that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the goal is basically, you know, that, that we are bringing people out, out of poverty by providing them the resources and the education that, that they need. Um, at the same time, if you're being a project manager, you kind of have to do everything um, because a lot of time the education levels is not what it needs to be. So you got to be the accountant, the HR manager, the, you have to train the agriculture staff, um, you have to be a logistics person, all these different things. Um, not yourself all the time, but you have to train people to do that, so you have to know how to do that. To, mm -hmm. to do that. So you kind of end up being a jack of a jack of all, all trades as well. So as you move up in development work, you get a little bit away from the farmer, and you and you're more working with the staff or working with the, mm -hmm. with the farmers. But I, I made a big effort always to go out and talk directly with, with the farmers, um, especially if you can speak the language, it makes it a lot, a lot easier. And um, building trust is very, very important mm -hmm. as, as well. And that's a, a big thing. Because if you're telling someone, you know, who's like, they're like here, right? They're like just above water. You're like, they're barely getting by. If you say, you know, I think you should do X to your field, if you give them wrong advice, then they're gonna go under, you know? Um, so you got to be, you got to take it very, 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 very seriously. And I think sometimes, sometimes people in development work don't, um, and that's that's another another issue. But of course, the main issue is is again, um, not to go too much in, into this and not the wine topic. But you know, we'll have something. I, I was working on um, one of the crops we were growing in Gambia was potatoes. You know, and it's really hard to grow potatoes in a hot climate. You have a very, very short window. Um, you got to plant exactly on time. You got to pre-germinate all the potatoes. So we did that with the money from the Dutch government, and that's where harvesting potatoes, a big boat comes from Holland and dumps potatoes in the market, <laughs> you know, and drives the price down. Right? So, mm -hmm. so what do you what do you do? So, I think um, a lot of things are 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 are, um, are doing, are making, and I kind of got the feeling sometimes that international organizations sometimes were like the marketing for the, the government, you know, like. You know, we're helping farmers in, in Africa, you know, but like, what are we doing here to change that? I mean, we're still buying all the cobalt from Congo um, to make smartphones, you know, so, and increasing the war there, right? So it's, we have to change here um, on, on, on this, this level, on our level here. Um, and I think Oregon does a pretty good job of working towards that. I think, so. But, but yeah, so, yeah, that's it. No, sure. Interesting. Not sure. Interesting. So tell me about the tell me about the the education then in Montpelier. You you get there for a master's in, in, in knowledge and viticulture. Tell me about that the process for you of, of being back at school, getting a master's degree, and, and diving into the the wine and vine world kind of full time, full on. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess being a student in your late thirties when everyone else is in their early twenties is always interesting. <laughs> um, but it was nice for me because I, I I had saved up money. You know, so I I could buy nice wine. I didn't have to buy the wine out of the box. <laughs> Like everyone else, um, and you know, even there in France, you know, like twenty dollars is—you could buy a really good bottle of wine for twenty dollars. You know? So, but yeah, it was hard at first, you know. Um, and I, I was working while going to school. I was working in a in a small vineyard and winery, um, going out there doing doing the labor, um, learning how to, to prune, learning how to, to drive a tractor. Um, and there, there were some times when I, I freaked out, you know, I, in this two thousand liter, you know fermentation tank scrubbing the tartaric acid off, the wine crystals off, be like, what happened to me? 
you know, like, <laughs> I, I used to be in charge of, you know, $20 million <laughs> per year, now I'm scrubbing the, scrubbing the asset off the, off the tanks, you know, but, um, but in the end, it, it was, it was, it was good, it was the right choice, um, I never looked back, and I always had my, that eye on, on, um, on doing that myself, um, when, one day, and it really was freeing, you know, being in agriculture and, and following this, this idea and this, this group, this dream with this long-term perspective. Um, um, I, I was in France, and then I also, the program was also going to another, another um, university as well. You had to go to two, so I went to, to Germany. Um, that's actually where the German came in handy as, as well, um, because it made it a lot easier to assimilate into, into the society. Did society there. Um, so I, I worked full-time during school and then also in the, in the summers um, um, for two different wineries, actually, just trying to get, to get um, better perception. And I got really inspired by the people who, who did that. Um, you know, going to the field, going to the cellar, everything's on the, on the line. Um, they have to market everything themselves. Um, and they had a very, they have a very beautiful life. It's a very, very hard life. It's, um, and I think that's something that I, I knew having worked in agriculture before coming in is that it's not easy. There's nothing romantic about it, I mean, that's, that's for sure. But, but I, I love it and I, I love doing it. Um, and they really inspired me. And um, eventually I, I got a, a call from a, a biodynamic um, winemaker I knew in the Mosul, who I knew met through friends of friends of school. Um, he was the first organic winemaker in the Mosul, where I kind of made fun of him, and also then later the first natural winemaker um, who makes quite good natural wines. And um, I met him a few times, and we had long conversations. So, but he basically um, recommended me to some, another person who been, called me and said, do you want to come run my winery in the Mosul? I, at first I was like, don't know if I have an experience to do that, <laughs> but but I'll do it. Um, they wanted to shift over to, to be biodynamic, so I went over, um, and that's really where that German comes in again, because everything was in, was in German. Um, ran the vineyard, ran ran the winery, um, shifted the process over over to to biodynamic, um, and the, the goal was I, I had saved up some money, um, not enough money as I had hoped <laughs> to start my own, my own thing. Is it is very very uh, expensive <laughs> as well, but um. So the deal I had with the owner um, was that, all right, um, I'll come work for a year, um, and if it works out well, then I'll buy in, into this, or basically like I'll rent the, the winery and land from you, and then you can go. Because she had taken it over from her father, um, and I'm not so sure, sure she really wanted to take it over. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, kind of those things where like there's no one else to take it over, so you, you, have, to, you have to do it um, in the Mosul of Germany, in very, very steep slopes and very, very hard hard working conditions, especially where the average bottle price is three euro per bottle. You know, so a lot of work going into it for not a lot of money coming out. Um, this, the winery itself was quite old uh, as well. Uh, it was from the 1800s even, so very, very old cellar, um, very, very traditional winery. Um, and at the end, we didn't really get along very, very well, my, myself and, and, and the owner. I think I had a lot of different ideas than, than she did. Um, nothing wrong with that as, as well, but after um, you know, one one full vintage, um, just decided that uh, she wanted somebody long term, and and it was quite clear that I wasn't very happy there. Um, so they will go. So I decided to to leave it. It's also quite hard in the Mosul. Um, even though I did speak German, the people are quite close there, and people would look at me like I was an alien. I mean, especially as my my car had French plates, they'd even be like French person. You know, like what is he doing here? Um, and uh, like when things always break, in agriculture everything breaks, you know. Um, 
as you're out there in rough conditions, you know. So it's like, all right, the tractor broke. Um, that's fine. Let's just borrow the neighbors. Um, what we do in France, right? What's it called? So, and they're like, no, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't bother. We, we stay to ourselves, you know. And that's kind of like, well, that's that's not really a community, you know. Um, it was only after that first vintage when I was kind of um, at a at a wine fair in the in the village, um, presenting our wine, that people actually came to talk to me after after one year of, <laughs> of being there. Um, I guess I had kind of passed the test anyway. But, but yeah, so um, I was trying to think of what to do, and I had a I had um, a lot of good friends who were really kind to me um, and gave me a lot of options. Um, um, my friend Stefan from France, the first person I started to work with um, outside of Montpellier, he basically said, look, I found um, about five hectares, about 12 acres of, of land here um, to buy. You know, the guy's willing to sell it to you. You can come, you can come buy it. Um, I'll sell you some more grapes and then, you know, you can come stay with me um, and I'll help you learn French better because my French is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we'll help you get set up. And, and, and everything. At the same time, I had another friend, um, Martin, um, Martin Sturm, who was an organic winemaker on the Rhine, in the Rheingau, and he also said the same thing, you know, come work for me part-time, um, you'll, you'll earn money, and then I'll help you start up something yourself. Um, so I had those opportunities there, you know, to try and start something my, myself, and, uh, but I don't know, something just didn't feel right. I got a bit tired of, of being a foreigner. Um, I also got a little bit tired, so to say, of of not being able to feel fully in, in my culture as, as well. Um, although I, I, was, I was very, very afraid if I came back here, I would be completely out of culture, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and what, what might happen there um, as well. At the same time, uh, yeah, I, I started to think, um, I'd always been very critical about the US, you know, about what's happening outside. Um, but it's easy from outside looking in, right? You know, you, you see what, what happens, happens politically, economically. Um, and even in terms of like talking about the healthcare issue, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I realized that it's very, very easy to, to be critical. Um, it's harder to go try to do something about it. You know? and, and coming from that development mindset, I had thought, um, I need to, I should, I should go back. I should go back. It's time to go back. Um, Europe is a good transition. You know, you come from Asia where things are completely different. You come to Europe where it's different but somehow similar. Um, <laughs> and then come, come, come back home. And I always kind of thought if I'd gone anywhere, it would be, it would be Oregon. And uh, I went to a, a booth in, in ProWine, which is a very, very big um, wine fair in, in Europe, um, in Germany, where there's like thousands of producers and it takes, uh, takes you about an hour to walk across it um, if you walk all the way around it. And that's also where you realize how big the competition is <laughs> in the world. It's this massive and it's more massive than you can even imagine. You know? um, and I went to the Oregon booth uh, and I went to a seminar in Oregon, Pinot Noir, and I was just completely blown away. I was like, I, I never knew that about Oregon, you know, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, at the same time, I met a few people um, from Oregon in my life who told me constantly how awesome Oregon was, <laughs> which I think people from Oregon do, you know, so, so I saw this advertisement um, come up for teaching viticulture at a community college, and I, I kind of thought, well, that's, that's it. I mean, um, it's, it's in Oregon. Um, I've been missing this development aspect, this helping people aspect, and in um, working in vineyards, you know, um, I, I miss that that kind of community. You're trying to, to better something, and this might be a, a good way, a good way to do it. Um, so as well, um, I came here. I got an interview. Surprisingly, I was completely shocked. 
So I came here for the interview, um, one just because I'd never been here, I wanted to see it and also to, to do the, the interview. Um, and I just fell, I fell in love with the place, with the, the nature and the mountains. And that's something that you don't really have um, in a lot of other places that we have in the U.S. It's just the, the big nature that's here. You know, I drove to the mountains, drove to the coast, went around to some wineries. And um, another thing that kind of shocked me was how nice everyone was. Everyone was super nice. You know, when I told them, you know, what do you, typical conversation, what do you do here in the tasting room? Or why are you here? And I told them, uh, they would like, take me back in the cellar, you know, I talked with the winemaker. Um, and I really felt that sense of community again. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose just from that short, that short visit. Um, the only thing that bothered me a little bit was that everyone would ask me what country I came from, because <laughs> my accent's a bit weird, and also my syntax now is a bit weird. Um, and I'd be like, I'm from here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. But yeah, so I, I, did, I, I, took the, I did the interview, um, and basically when I went up to do the interview, there was a guy leaving, um, they were talking to him, um, in a suit. And I looked at what I was wearing, which is basically like this. Uh, I think I had a collar shirt on, and I was like, they're never going to hire me. <laughs> no way. You know, like, I, I don't even have experience in Oregon. You know, like, all, all of my, my experience is coming from Europe, the European perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had the interview, um, and then when I was on the plane back, I got a phone call saying, you know, will you do a second interview? Um, and then I, I got the job, and yeah, and I, I moved back. Um, I, I never lost the, the dream of, of starting my, my own thing, doing my own thing. And one of the things that surprised me also when I, was, when I came here was how many wineries rent out cellar space to other people um, as a way to, to make more money. I think it's a really good model, I think, you know, especially here where things are quite small, mm -hmm. more boutique wineries than anything else. Um, and it's a way to earn money. And also I was surprised that there were wineries that didn't have a vineyard but bought grapes. Right? Um, one of the first places I went for tasting was Walter Scott. Um, it was great wine, but they didn't have a vineyard. And I was kind of like, wow, you know? <laughs> um, that's, that's interesting. That's like completely against the, the European model that I, I've been in. You know? nothing, that's, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, I think it's great to be able to pick grapes from different sites and, and play around with it. Um, that's really, really cool. So I thought, well, you know, I, I take this teaching job. Um, I'll also be able to you know, contribute a bit more, and I can start something myself. Right? So, um, I immediately got on, on the, what is it, the Oregon Wine Production Facebook mm -hmm. page and started looking for grapes. I ended up with four grapes, um, or four tons of grapes um, from organic, biodynamic growers. Um, and at the same time, I kind of hooked up with someone who has a mini vineyard. I don't want to say how big it is because it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very small. But they basically said, look, we don't want to deal with it anymore. If you want to come, take it over and keep the grapes, that's fine. So. So I, I took that on um, as well, which I, I do it completely by hand, um, zero carbon farming, um, which is quite tough, but luckily it's very small. So it's, so, so it's a, okay, and I, I rent um, space at, at Abbey Road now, and, um, and uh, making my wine, which should be released um, fairly soon under the name Human Cellars. And yeah, um, so being able to do that on, on the side um, as well, um, and then um, finding finding the place where and and now. Um, having that, that money actually that I had from the apartment that I bought in Berlin in a neighborhood that everyone made fun of me because it was pretty run down. It got, it got gentrified. Um, and so I bought it very cheap and ended up being able to, to buy, buy these eight acres that I have, I have here um, to, to start, something, start something up. So being the, the, the teacher, one thing in terms of being able to, to help people and to bring them up and meet their goals is, is great for me. And at the same time that I have enough free time to, to do my own 
uh, projects is, is very, very important. Um, especially just having the summers off um, is, is great. I still teach one class, so you can't be a vineyard management instructor and not teach in the summer. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But, um, but the rest of the time is, is, is fairly free to, to, to pursue mm -hmm. these, these other things, um, which also really attracted me to the, to the job. Um, and once, once I got here as well, I found out about the Aivoy, um, and immediately when I found out about that, um, I said, look, I, I want to do this. Uh, I, I want to be involved um, in this because bringing up um, stewards or helping people move up um, is, is great. It's something we should be doing, and it's something that I had done for so many years that, that I kind of missed it. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that kind of made me feel much more whole, in, in a sense, uh, that I wasn't just in an industry that's looking for luxury, <laughs> luxury product, but also wants to take care of, of the very foundation of people that it relies on, which are, are the farm workers. You know, it doesn't matter if it's blueberries or it's grapes or whatever. You know. mm -hmm. um, and the fact that there's something that, that's trying to, to improve them um, and to improve their situation, I, I think is, is great. I'm glad that we could be a part of it. Um, especially as a community college, right? Because the, the word is their community, right? So mm -hmm. we, we should all be there. Um, and it's, it's been a good experience so far. I mean, um, I haven't managed to meet a lot of people due to COVID. <laughs> um, and I often think if, if I had taken over um, or started in, in France or Germany, I, I, would, have, I would be dead. I'd, I'd be bankrupt. I wouldn't be, I'd be alive, obviously, but I'd be bankrupt, right? I would have put all my money into everything and then everything was shut down. Mm -hmm. And not being established in the market would have, been, <laughs> mm -hmm. would have been tough with no secondary income source. Mm -hmm. you know, so. So looking back on it, it was it was the right choice. Uh, I also the first day I, I arrived here in Portland, I met a girl and fell in love. I got engaged <laughs> as as well. Um, so it just seemed to to work out work out well. I guess you were meant to be here eventually. That's that's awesome. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's the right place at the right stage of life. Um, I would have never been ready earlier, um, and now it's just it's just the time to come back and and mm -hmm. to. To start something in, in a way where um, you already feel comfortable in your own skin and who you are, start that up. Um, that's always a long, a long journey as we're constantly changing throughout our, our, our life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many questions to ask, but I'm gonna back up for a second. I'm curious, you, you came into viticulture obviously with the background, a background in agriculture, background in horticulture, background in all that. Tell me about learning viticulture was there was there was there anything anything surprising about it is there anything unique about growing grapes versus growing other kinds of things yeah i mean i think the great thing with grapes the interesting thing about grapes is how terroir driven it is right terroir site driven right um and that's that's really being able to the farm in a way that you maximize that that expression of your site you know of your soil of your climate of your of your um yeah it's a general environment it's great and that's one reason why i think um at least in my experience here and also in in, um, in france and, and germany is that people who do vineyard management are super open um and also winemakers you know they'll go they'll tell you what they did they'll tell you how they made their wine they'll tell you everything you know like and you kind of think well, why are they why are they doing that like what's isn't there some competition you know mm -hmm. but i think that because it's so site specific there's this feeling that no one can repeat can replicate your terroir, mm -hmm. even if they're the vineyard next to you, right? You're still slightly different, um, and you're probably even if you farm exactly the same, you're going to come off still, still a bit different. Um, so that's one side. The other side, um, and what also drew me to it as well, is basically, I mean, 
good wine comes from good grapes and the style of wine you want to make comes from there, right? Comes from the soil, comes from what you do there. Um, and it's in agriculture, that's super interesting perspective, you know? Um, quite often we, we, we grow for, for volume or we do for, for quality, but there's not, not really thinking about too, too far down the line. You know? um, in, this, in this way, you're really trying to think, all right, half of my art is the way I farm and, and the other half of my art is, is how I make wine from, from that. So the, there's the two sides. So I think that's, those were the two things that really, really drew, drew me. Um, what was surprising to me was how much labor is involved. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very labor intensive um, um, operation as, as well. Um, but, but again, that's, that's good for, for people. You know, mechanization is not good for everyone um, as, as well, unless there's other jobs to replace or there's a loss in mechanization. That's, that's again, another, another side. So you obviously haven't really had a chance to, to, to fully integrate into Jamaica yet with, 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 the, with COVID going on right now and not being able to actually do everything in person yet. But I'm curious, as you've, as you've come into teaching, what is it you want students to get out of your classes? What, what are you hoping to bring to the table and, and what are you hoping students will take away from, from your experience and from your teaching? Yeah. In my experience myself going through the process, is I learned a lot on the job, <laughs> as everyone does, you know, you learn all the practical stuff, right? In school, you, you, you learn, you know, the theory behind things, but until you like really actually do them. Um, and that's kind of what I want them to take away is the hands-on stuff. And that's the nice thing about community college is that we have a vineyard, we have the tractor, we get, I get students now in the tractor. Um, there was a few years we didn't. Um, it's, a, it's a risk for the school, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but our tractor is pretty easy to drive or how to mount the implements, you know, all these, all these small things. Every student has, um, about four rows in the vineyard, two rows of reds, two rows of whites that they basically have to manage. Um, not spraying, because we spray the whole vineyard at once, but that they're actually get, getting that hands-on, making the mistakes that they can make in our, in our vineyard and not paying a heavy penalty <laughs> for it. Mm -hmm. um, and God, if you can prune in the Chemeketa vineyard, you can prune anywhere, because that, that thing is, I don't want to say badly pruned, it's pruned by people who are learning, right? So when you, people come to it to learn, they see like cuts are all crazy, there's wounds everywhere, you know? So, it's challenging, but it's a good way to, to learn um, as, as well. So that and, and just that, that people can have confidence to, to, to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the nice things, um, especially with the, with the tractor, is that when you got people in this year, because um, we're now back to face-to-face, -to -face, mm -hmm. um, a lot of, I hate to put the gender stereotype, but a lot of women were afraid of it, right? Um, and once they got in and drove the little obstacle course that I set up with cones, um, they came out and much like, that's, that's not so hard, you know? And like that, that kind of confidence booster, they're like, yeah, I, I can do it, you know? Mm -hmm. I, can, I can do this. Um, there's no reason why I, I need to, to think that I can't or that holding back because of my gender or my, or my weight or, or, or I say weight, strength, sorry, or strength or, or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah, then that's kind of what I, I want them to bring back. At the same time, um, that everyone does things differently. Um, you have to decide for yourself. Um, my goal was to have lots of guest speakers and lots of field trips. Uh, that's cut down <laughs> quite a lot. Um, we did have a start a new class. I will start in the spring, which is organic biodynamic viticulture. I was getting a lot of questions on that, um, and there's just not enough time to, to dedicate. So being able also to offer that that option mm -hmm. as as well, I'd like them to get out, get that out that there are these different systems, um, and especially if you're working for a vineyard management company, um, even though live might be the predominant certification form, you might have one vineyard that's organic, that's Oregon Tilt, and one vineyard that's Demeter, right? So you need to know all of, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny, you know, our, our board, 
our board is, is great. Um, and they're, they're usually, you know, pretty agreeable to what we have to say. But when I put this class up for approval by them, it was the most lively conversation they've ever had. <laughs> Do we offer it or not? You know, what's the science behind it? All these, all these, all these different things. But, but at, the, at the end, they, they, um, the vote was to, to, to do it. So I think being able to bring that into the industry, and there's not um, a lot of that being offered. It's the only other university I know that offers that, um, or I would say higher education, sorry, we're not a university, um, is in Germany where I studied in, in Geisenheim, which is why I went there as, mm -hmm. as, as, as well. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, as it is a certification system, we need to be teaching it. Mm -hmm. We need to be, to be, to be relevant. So that's, that's basically, I mean, the tools that, 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 they, that they need to, to go out there and get a job or start their own thing. Mm -hmm. And our, our classes are really fun, um, mostly because we have this mix of students who are, some are, are young, starting out, you know, they're, they're looking for jobs, and some graduated with a PhD in rocket science from Google, and um, worked at Google or something, <laughs> and retired at, at 60 and asked me super hard questions sometimes. Um, so it's, 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 kind of, it's, it's fun to have this kind of mix of, of people, you know, the ones who, who are really analytically minded, who bought a vineyard, and, and the ones who are, are starting, mm -hmm. starting out trying mm -hmm. to learn and have them both in the same room. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty interesting. Obviously, we've, we've heard over the, our many interviews, Chemeketa often, I mean, it's, a, it's such a stalwart part of the industry now, and so, so many people have come through it. I'm curious what your first impressions were of, of the school and the program and the students and, and sort of what you, what you thought you could bring that, that wasn't already being offered. Obviously, you mentioned organic biodynamic already. What else do you bring to the table that, for the next generation of Oregon wine growers? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I have to answer that one carefully. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I, I was also surprised when I came here for the interview, you know, and went around to wineries and, and was doing tastings, was finding out about the industry here. Um, the people asked me why I was in Oregon, and I told them for this interview, they were like, oh, I went to school there. And I was like, really? Like, I didn't realize that there was so, much, so many um, people had, had gone through the program. Um, so I, I did feel a little bit intimidated by it, um, I had to say. Um, I think from my side, bringing in my, my European perspective um, as well, and I have to admit it, one of the challenges for me starting was actually going back to pounds per gallon and not grams per liter. <laughs> It took me, I had to really rewire my brain um, for, for, for that as, as well. But I think just, just that other perspective of, of the European perspective and this perspective and, and why sometimes we copy something for the European perspective and try to put it here, but it doesn't really make sense here. Mm -hmm. um, um, and basically why we have to be more specific. Um, as, as well, um, when, luckily for me, um, coming out, not really in the viticulture side, but I do teach um, some wine tasting classes. Um, one of them is called Wines of the World. Um, and that's a lot of fun for me because I've worked and 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 um, lived in a lot of these wine regions. Um, so to be able to like go into detail on, on this, on the the site, the terroir, the management, and even the culture of those areas is 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 also nice. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that I mean besides the biodynamics, just trying to to be open and try to expose students as much as I can to to the industry um, and to connect them um, as much as possible with each other. Um, and help them, you know, meld into this this network that's that's here. It's already very supportive. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I tried to work a lot when I arrived here. <laughs> like I shut down um, after a while, but I hope to to continue to get more and more people um, coming in and involved in the mm -hmm. in the school. And um, and yeah, that that we're basically um, you know keeping the quality 
of, of the industry that, um, alive that, that we have and that people are able to, to find to find the workers that they need or people are able to start something on their own um, as, as well. Um, one thing that I try to bring in as well is um, it, it was a little bit tough for me at the beginning to break it down into vineyard manager and, and winemaker because mm -hmm. to me those are the same. Mm -hmm. um, so I tried to integrate a lot of that into into our class and it was really interesting with Ayavoy because it would ask a lot of questions like why do when, when, why, why, when the winemakers come and tell us the harvest why is why this time why not that time and to be able to to explain that or to tie in like how does our decisions in the in management of the vineyard affect the wine quality or what is the winemaker trying to do with that um, that, that also that also I think mm -hmm. helps so I, I try to bring in the other side mm -hmm. um, as much as much as I can because I feel like that's something that that we, we need to know mm -hmm. for, for sure mm -hmm. Um, on the other side, um, I, I kind of see our, our small vineyard there, Jamaica, as an example vineyard. So it's tough to manage because you know, we'll have like six rows of one variety, six rows of another. Um, but we are trying out some new varieties um, in there that are becoming more popular here. We have some, um, we just planted some Vermentino, we'll top graft over to some Swigelt. Um These things are, are kind of popping up here in your mm -hmm. small pockets. Um, but in, Pinot Noir will always, will always be, be king here. and. Um, it is our flagship grape, and we need to stick to it. But we are also a small industry, you know. So production of, of Pinot Noir is going to reach a point where, where it's, there's going to be a, a lot of fruit on the market. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. So I, I think just to diversify, especially for closer markets, you know, like like Portland or San Francisco or other things that maybe are a bit more whinies. <laughs> I, I don't know who would look for. A, I mean, people now even look for what um, Trousseau <laughs> mm -hmm. from from Oregon or or Gamay. It's, Big now and Jardin. So yeah. I think um, we, we can kind of also take the risk at our vineyard with our, you know, by planting one or two rows of these things to see how they ripen, how, how to make wine um, more than the industry themselves have, mm -hmm. have to take it on. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier a little bit about your, your kind of initial impressions of the industry and your initial kind of travels around and, and tastings and, and the kind of community aspect that you had missed. Uh, tell me what else, what, what else did you kind of initially think about Oregon wine and, and the industry? What, what was, what, what did you, what, what stood out to you about it? And, and where did you see, again, like room to grow? Well, yeah, I mean, the quality of wine, number one, is, is, is very, very, very high. I found that nice. Um, second thing I, I quite liked about it when I arrived here is that it's not a wine region per se where there's just vines everywhere, you know, like you'll have You'll have a dairy, and then you'll have a vineyard, and then you'll have you know, some hazelnut trees, and then a, a vineyard. So I, I like that that kind of diversity of, of, of landscape, um, and I think that brings a lot to, to Oregon as well, and just also in, into the wine in terms of having a diverse system instead of a giant monoculture mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, around. Um, could you repeat the question? Sorry, I oh, okay. got lost in my no. thought. <laughs> um, just like your initial impressions of the industry, oh, yeah. and, and, and then sort of what you thought, where yeah. you saw room to grow. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So I, I definitely see see room to grow as well. I mean. Just in terms of site, you know, um, as it gets warmer, um, we'll definitely have to explore different sites. I, find, I think there's room to grow looking for other varieties. So I think Chardonnay is a, a good a good option. Mm. As well, we'll have to see what, what comes up with Gamay as, as well. But um, one thing I think is for sure is that as it gets warmer, we're going to have to adapt. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to have room to grow. We might look at another variety to introduce um, as a flagship grape, mm -hmm. slightly warmer. And then we'll have to plant higher for, for Pinot Noir, um, mostly because as we warm up, we're going to start to lose that very delicate um, acid-driven Pinot Noir that we're known for, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and that's going to be a marketing problem, <laughs> I, I honestly think, right? Um, 
so I, I think there, there is room for, for growth for another slightly warmer grape. Um, whatever that is, is going to really depend. There's a lot of experimenting going on, mm -hmm. I, I think. But um, it's going to happen, definitely. Bordeaux just added several varieties to their list of allowed varieties. The most conservative Appalachian ever, you know. They, they realize this, so I think also with them, what's going to happen with them? It's going to be interesting to watch as they start to make wine with, without their traditional Cabernet Sauvignon, Bordeaux, Petit Bordeaux mm -hmm. varieties. What's, how are they going to adapt to the market? Um, as, as well, Oregon is, um, is definitely in the right spot right now in terms of, of market, and, and hopefully it will stay that way in terms of you know higher acid, lower alcohol wines mm -hmm. that, that people want. So it's in a, it's in a good spot. Um, I only hope that it doesn't grow too much. <laughs> um, and that's, that's kind of selfish, I guess, you know, if we wanted to, to grow. But I think one of Oregon's beauty is, is the, how the community is and how we help each other in this diverse landscape that, that we have. And if it all gets planted out to vines and we start to get more competition, um, that's going to be difficult. And that's, that's kind of really, really what I loved about it when I came here. It was so much like southern France. Um, southern France was a bulk wine area. Um, just young people came, started the past 10 years, really tried to produce quality wine. Everyone's helping each other out. Mm -hmm. Similar to here, you know, people came and started, and told them that it wasn't possible. <laughs> Everyone kind of had to help each other to, to survive, and that, that spirit is still there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if that spirit stays on, then, then there's definitely room to grow in terms of, in terms of um, marketing, so to say, or, mm -hmm. or sales. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned one of the things you bring is, is experience in a number of wine-growing regions in the world. Tell me how Oregon compares in terms of uh, sort of the atmosphere, the wine quality, and, and, and uh, just sort of in general compares to other places you've been and worked. I mean, the wine quality in Oregon is, is, is very high. Um, I think because there's, there's, again, there's not really that bulk wine <laughs> production here. Like, we're not producing for, for volume. We're, we're producing for, for quality, almost, almost everyone, you know. So, that's, that's definitely there, and that's very much in contrast to, say, a lot of places where I was in, in the Languedoc area, where, it, uh, with the exception of these, um, this handful of winemakers who are, are really trying to control quality, it's really a lot about production mm -hmm. as well. Um, and in Germany as well, I mean, it's, it's a dance between um, quality and, and cost, you know, steep slopes. We had one steep slope, it was about an acre as well, and the rest, other 14 acres that we had on steeps that were not so, slopes that were not so steep. You could still drive a, a crawler on them, but that one acre was by hand, and it took us the same amount of man hours to that one acre as the other 14. Like, so in terms of quality, it's a bit lost because you, you can't hire all the people that you need mm -hmm. um, to, to farm that. Uh, it's just, it's just, not, just not possible, considering that the, the bottle prices said $3 on average per, per bottle, right? And I was at, um, Winery where I was managing was the higher end one, where like a bottle of Riesling was twelve. You know, people are like, oh, twelve dollar Riesling—that's expensive. <laughs> you know, um, we did have some Pinot Noir um, that is very, very good. I think the, the Pinot Noir from Germany is, is excellent if, if you can find it. Um, it's hard to, to find coming out of the R or even pockets of, of Baden or the Mosel. It's very similar to, to here. Mm -hmm. um, so the farming style between those is. is is pretty similar. It's, of course, you have your typical differences. You know the spacings. Here we have much much wider rows. Um, we don't have as many plants per per acre. Mm -hmm. We also are very very lucky here, and I, I don't want to to make anyone in the industry mad, but our pests and disease issues are easy compared to Europe. I mean, there we have powdery mildew, yeah, like we have here. Downy mildew, which is another one that comes under the leaves. We have um, the spotted spotted grape moth, European grape moth, the Asian grape moth. We have fruit fly, like so. 
You get a disease when it rains, you get a disease when it doesn't rain. You get, I mean, there's always something coming at you from like every, every angle, you know, and you're, you're constantly like being, being proactive. And, and when I came here, like, we have powdery mildew, you know, some botrytis, you know, it's quite tough. And I'm just like, that's it. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's all you have, you, you know. Um, I, I think these other diseases, they will start to, mm -hmm. to, to come in. Um, and maybe that's something where also I can also add, um, having battled those, those diseases <laughs> constantly. Um, but that also helps us, helps it improve the wine quality here where, you know, you don't have to, to really hit it so hard with, mm -hmm. with, um, Organic or 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 or, or conventional, it's mm -hmm. still still a pretty heavy fight, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. um. Obviously, you're you're you have a, a long history of, of interest in organic farming and now biodynamic grape growing. Tell me about the importance of those to you and to you to your kind of vision of the future here. Like why why organic and biodynamic in Oregon? And what do you see for their future here in in, uh, in the Oregon wine industry? Yeah, I, I see it growing, um, and for sure, a lot of a lot of people are moving over to organic or biodynamic, um, not necessarily certifications, but just in, in, in farming practice. Um, that's one thing. There's there's something there's something to that in terms of respecting, trying to respect the environment, um, and and human health. You know, we never know what's what's going to show up um, in in the grapes eventually. You know, I mean, everything is safe now um, that we know of, but you know. Um, there were some reports that, that glyphosate was found in, in some wine recently. You know? So um, we, we never really know. Like, as our science gets more exact and precise, we're able to, to tell how these different chemicals end up in the wine. Um, I don't want to say that environmentally organic or biodynamic is always better than conventional, because I don't think that's true. You can spray all over the place of sulfur you know, and kill every single insect around. That's not, that's not good. You know? or, or you can be very, very... Um, conservative, conventional farmer, live farmer, and, and do a great job. You know, I, I don't really feel like it's, it's one or, or the other. It's, it's organic versus conventional or biodynamic versus, versus conventional. Um, I think in the market, it's growing as well. Um, one nice thing about here compared to, to Europe and the stricter EU laws is that there's a lot of things available here that we never saw in, in Europe. Uh, some of the biologicals or like cinerate, this cinnamon extract. Mm -hmm. um, we, we basically have sulfur, copper, and and um, calgarine, calcium, um, potassium carbonate. That's it. Like we have three things. <laughs> Here we have all sorts of stuff. You know, so um, it makes it a bit easier to, to try to, to take take it down. Um, and I look at places like um, like Keeler, who actually were completely without sulfur, um, mm -hmm. which is really hard. Um, and they they do have some loss, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But it shows that it can be done. We can take it down. Mm -hmm. um, the, the next question is going to be. I think it's going to be more and more um, as well important once we get. Um, electric trackers as, as well, because our spraying time is basically almost doubled when we go to conventional. It can be 30 to 50 percent more, but that's a lot of driving time, right? Mm -hmm. And that's also calls into the question of, you know, carbon footprint <laughs> mm -hmm. versus not. So, I think at the end, if you were just to use sulfur um, and spray as sulfur and um, caligreen, it's about the same as conventional in terms of cost. It's not that much, that much off, including the labor, but. When you get into the more expensive organics, then it gets, mm -hmm. it gets more, more expensive. But I think it will continue to grow as people value it. Um, the nice thing about live is that you have the 5% of the land that needs to be conserved in positive, and Demeter needs to be 10. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that kind of holistic mm -hmm. part is, is good. And I, I see people starting to pick up pieces of, of the other one. That kind of, it's kind of like a mix match, you know, like 
and, and live seems to be moving more and more almost towards organic as more things get put on the on the red list or the or the orange list you know like we have more and more chemicals getting chopped off there mm -hmm. every year it seems mm -hmm. so i think mm -hmm. we're, we're moving that way and a, a nice thing especially with all this research in cover crops is just improving this biodiversity um, in the vineyard so that it's not just a monoculture but mm -hmm. but it is it is bringing in other aspects it's kind of mimicking our, our landscape our landscape here of various farming systems um, coexisting together inside inside the vineyard and i think that will that will continue to to expand um just because it's just because it's good farming mm -hmm. I mean, i'll be i'll be very honest um, um and biodynamics which is my my personal interest i know a lot of people don't believe in it no. i i believe that um just by by being by paying attention <laughs> um, to the, these small changes and cycles in, in nature, we can be better farmers. Mm -hmm. you, know, like, you don't always have to follow the stars or follow the moon, or and sometimes you can't. You know, sometimes you got to spray, you, know, you got to spray, <laughs> or or it's coming up towards towards um, April and you have to prune. You know, you can't say, all right, we're going to prune. You know, on, on the fruit day today and then stop the next day. Like sometimes it's just not possible. You know, mm -hmm. so I think it's about being dogmatic and being. Being corrected, my, my, my good friend Rudy from the Mosul, um, he was very, very pragmatic, very dogmatic um, in terms of biodynamics. You know, he, would, he was all for drones. He said, look, if we have drones, if we don't have to drive a tractor um, to spray, then, then let's do that. You know, like, that's, that's great. You know, we don't have to, to, to be Luddites. <laughs> we can move with technology. I mean, it just, it just has to be in a, in a respectful, mm -hmm. respectful way of, of nature. And I, I feel the same way. I'm not anti-technology um, at all. I'm just more about paying more attention. Um, and that kind of, as well, comes into, um, I guess, human sellers, uh, what I'm trying to, to start now, where it's kind of a funny name, I guess, human sellers. There's no, there's no humans in the cellar, right? I mean, like, in my cellar. Um, but more of that is basically, you know, that man is part of the agriculture system and not outside trying to control it. Right, but it's being influenced, it's influencing it and it's influencing you. There's that human aspect, the same in the cellar, right? Um, that you're influencing the wine and the wine's influencing you as, as you make it. Um, and you think about it, it's true. I mean, if you're in a bad mood, you go out there and, and prune, <laughs> you make a lot of different decisions than if you're in a good mood, right? Same where you go out and everything's nice in your vineyard, you, 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 you kind of tend to make slightly different decisions depending on, mm -hmm. on how you're feeling and, and I feel like the, the farm influences that how your farm is doing and how you are doing influences the, the farm um, as well mm -hmm. yeah um, the other aspect of, of, of human sellers is um, that every wine that we make is dedicated to one of these farmers that we've met um, along the way so one is dedicated to Rudy one is dedicated to Stefan one is dedicated to some farmers in, in Myanmar mm -hmm. um, one will come through to um, for uh, enologists of Portugal. So um, we try to, to bring in that aspect. Um, and that, for me, again, that comes into the dynamics of how other people also influence you and then how you influences you in your life and then your farming practice. Um, and this is always an evolving, evolving system. And that kind of falls into a line of biodynamics and rhythms and that everything is different every, every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so so with the with the your wine at Human Cellars, your upcoming wine, what, uh, what tell me about the style? Tell me about the philosophy behind the wine itself. After after you after you get done farming it that way, what's the next step? What do you want in the bottle? Yeah, so I I um being on my own now, not having to make wine for somebody else, I've taken a lot more risks <laughs> than, than I would have. Um, that's for sure. So so my goal is basically to make wine as simply as possible and to express that sight as, as simply as possible, which means that I very hands-off 
up and up. I mean, I know we're all like um, low, <laughs> low intervention winemakers, right? Everyone, everyone says that. But I, um, I really try to step back, um, and I will only intervene uh, if if there's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't put any any additives in there. Um, I really try to stay back and let things let things go. But if there is a problem, I'm not like, oh, you know, it'll be fine. Um, you know, and if, if it starts to smell a bit like nail polish or whatever, you know, I, I come in to do something. But um, but yes, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the style. It's very 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 low sulfur, mm -hmm. no no other no additions of acid or or sugar or water. I mean that's something that that's interesting to me as as well. Like, I mean what's allowed in the new world, which I think is again stylistic choice and very well. Oftentimes it's illegal in the old world. You know, like when you hear some things, you're like, you can do that, not not go to jail. <laughs> you know, so um, so I think coming from that, that European perspective is also quite interesting. Where you try to. Mm -hmm. Try to to step back. Um, the some of the wine um, is without sulfur completely. Um, so far, <laughs> hopefully it will stay that way. Um, um, but yeah, it's it's really really kind of a we we step back and and uh, and try to to let the the grape express itself, the terroir ex express itself um, as well, and try to to follow the philosophies of these people who who we've met mm -hmm. along the way. Which is why um, I think. Oh, de Rudy, um, the reasoning that's without sulfur is also from Keeler, which is without sulfur in the vineyard, which is something that would have thrilled him, you know. So, um, mm -hmm. so those kind of things, you know, or, or our, our Gamay, which is dedicated to our friend Stefan from southern France, um, is does have sulfur, but it's very, very low, low doses of, of, mm -hmm. of sulfur. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of neutral oak. I, I have only one. I'd say it's almost new barrel. <laughs> it's new, but it's a, it's a rewind barrel, right? So it was, it was refurbished, so. but I didn't use it this year. As a, I didn't buy as many grapes as I wanted due to the big cloud of smoke that was hanging on top of us. <laughs> um, so you talked about uh, with human sellers, you're, you're making recently, you're making Gamay. Do you have thoughts on the future for what you, other, other varietals you want to work with, other things you want to grow and or make? Yeah, so um, in here, I'll start out with a few acres. Um, that's basically what I can manage my, myself with my job. Um, um, I wish I had more money to put into it and plant the whole thing and be able to, to hire people to come in and, and do the, all the, the pruning and leaf thinning and all that work, but um, fortunately not. So um, I will plant a little bit of a variety called Lagrine, which is in, went from Sudoro up, up north, where I have a friend who's a winemaker. Um, that's why I love that variety. I am. A, I think with the southern-facing sloping aspect I have here, it should ripen. Um, I'm pushing the limits a little bit, <laughs> um, but I think, it, especially with climate change, um, it, it, it will it will ripen. Um, especially, you know, in terms of management as well, mm -hmm. and trying to, to to advance management through through the various you know canopy management or fruit thinning management mm -hmm. strategies that we have. Um, but yeah, so it's on the border here of, of ripening or not ripening. Um, but I'm looking for you know, something that's going to blend well with, with Pinot Noir. I'd like to, to do more blends mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, and then the other one is Gruner Metliner um, will we'll come in as well. It's getting more, more popular mm -hmm. here, so that will, that will come in again on, on the site. Uh, and yeah, that's those two varieties. And then uh, I'll see how they, how they do, how they end up producing, and then from there I'll, I'll try, to, try to expand. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll be selling some wine and then have some income that will come in that I can put into the vineyard <laughs> as well. Um, but, but yeah, at the moment it's all, all expense, <laughs> all expenses, yeah. Um, all the overhead. Yeah, yeah, all the overhead <laughs> as, as it is, you know. I mean, especially in vineyards, you know, you, you, you put it in, first two years is nothing. You might get something in the third year, um, 
but you won't really start earning anything till mm -hmm. till year four. So, but yeah, and land's not cheap here. <laughs> That's for sure. You have uh, all this, uh, all the experiences and almost everything, but have you've never really sold wine before? Yeah. Tell, tell me about that and, and and looking ahead to that and, and kind of your plans for how you're going to sell your wine. That that kind of freaks me out, <laughs> actually. Um, but yeah, luckily my, my fiance is very outgoing, and <laughs> hopefully we'll we'll be able to, um, to to go around and help us sell. But yeah, the I, the initial idea when we started was um, you know aiming at bars and, and restaurants and you know, kind of niche niche places even that might be looking for natural wine or low sulfur wine. Mm -hmm. um, with COVID, uh, that kind of hit the <laughs> hit the fan a little bit. <laughs> so um, we're we trying to look around now and kind of re reassess what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a friend in Carlton who has a, a farm store where they they sell mostly um, mostly meat, mostly um, grass-fed beef and chickens. And people are coming all the time. They're constantly sold out. So we will try to add our, our wine into that, mm -hmm. into that system to try to break in as, as well. Uh, but the, I don't make that much. You know, I'm, I have about 300 cases. Um, 100 of that is Gamay, and the, the rest is you know, um, 50 of Riesling, 50 of Chardonnay, um, 30 cases of a rosé. <laughs> um, that should have been Pinot Noir, but <laughs> got turned into rosé this year. Um, but yeah, that's that's it. Um, I'm hoping as well that so the rosé is a zero carbon farmed rosé, so I'm hoping to catch some traction with that. Um, mm -hmm. And then the the zero sulfur riesling is as well, and the very very low sulfur, um, gamay. Mm -hmm. I think um, gamay is a little bit easier to sell. If it was pinot noir, I might be a little bit more worried with the competition, because the competition here is tough um, for pinot noir, mm -hmm. and really really good wines with really really good names and. I mean, definitely, I feel like in the wine industry, you know, when people talk about, yeah, I want to make good quality wine, that's, that's not enough anymore. Everyone makes good quality wine. You know, you, you've, you've got to have a better marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. better, to, better than us, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so we, we'll bottle pretty soon um, on the spring equinox, and then we'll, we'll have to tackle that, that monster. <laughs> Having more time in the summer is anyway good. Um, you know, allows you to go around more. Hopefully, things will open up um, as well. But yeah, at least um, not having that much wine. Hopefully, we can mm -hmm. we can sell it. Mm -hmm. Let's see. If not, we'll just use it for our wedding. <laughs> <laughs> that would be actually pretty unique. That'd be pretty cool, actually. Not, not as cost effective, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But let's, let's see. You had talked earlier um, kind of about the idea eventually of having your own thing and having it be sort of a resource to other people who had had kind of had had similar situations to you or similar. Um, so tell me about, as you look ahead for Human Cellar, is that still something you're interested in? Are you trying to turn it into something bigger than what it is? Yeah, I mean, um, I would like to to continue with that dream of, of hosting people from here. So I said, buy property, um, eight acres, which is a house with an addition. So um, there's a complete other, there's three bedrooms, a full kitchen, um, living room, other part of the house that's connected to our house by a wall, or we share a wall. Um, and that couldn't very well once we get all planted out here and if there's enough still interest to, to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Especially having the summers free, um, allowing people to come here um, and to kind of recover and, mm -hmm. and talk with someone who's, who's been through it. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I'm, I'm at the point now um, where I can talk about it openly. Um, mm -hmm. That's awesome. We, Type of interview. I really had a long conversation with myself, with 
you know, do, do I say all this stuff on the camera or not? Am I okay with it? Um, but I, I'm actually I'm quite comfortable with it now, um, which I think is a good sign of, of recovery, so, so to say. So, um, and having transitioned um, from one career to, to another, um, it's not very easy to transfer from development work into another, another profession. Um, so I feel quite lucky that I was, was able, able to do that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the goal. Um, let's see, we have to see another time, you know, um, with COVID, a lot of, saw what happened to a lot of um, retirement homes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it could be that my parents end up there. Um, I, I, I don't know, but yeah, eventually it would, it would be very, very, um, it would be an end goal. I haven't forgotten that, that dream to, to do that and, mm -hmm. and, and to help people. And it could come on maybe other, other forums, if eventually another winery would want to take that on, it could also be a part of it. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, it's, um, was not, it has not been lost to sight, it's just been buried under and, and trying to start up and move to, back to a country. I won't say move to a new country, but it's, <laughs> it's the same country as I grew up, so. You feel like it's own country sometimes yeah. out here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit about both of the, both of the sort of tragedies of 2020 the, uh, for the industry, COVID, of course, and, and the smoke in the, in this, in, at Harvest. Let's talk first about COVID a little bit more. Tell me about, you, you've talked a little bit already about the effects on your teaching and, and everything else. Tell me about sort of uh, effects, other effects you've seen and, and the way you've had to kind of pivot this year. And as we hopefully are coming out of it soon, what you see, what changes you've seen or you've taken on that you may see, may become permanent after we come out of COVID. Yeah, we see a lot of virtual wine tasting coming and trying to reach people that way. Um, I'm not sure how effective that, that's been, to be very, very honest. Um, we had to teach some classes like that, um, some wine tasting classes like that as, as well. It was quite tough. Um, we're lucky that at least at Chemeketa we we're able to meet in person, um, as long as we're far apart. And luckily, I have 80 acres and not more than 12 students, so everyone can, be, everyone can have one acre, <laughs> or less, a little bit less than one acre. Um, so in terms of, of Chemeketa, we actually have seen a bump in enrollment mm -hmm. for us, um, I think, as people start to, to change careers. Um, look at, at new things or are able to work from home and say, hey, you know, I, I want to move to Oregon mm -hmm. well, and, and try something else while, while working. So I think in terms of changing the industry, in terms of influx of, of people into the industry, I, I think that there's going to be, be more at least mm -hmm. trying, trying to come in as they, as they take a good long look at their life, um, being in, inside indoors for a year <laughs> now. Uh, the industry is going to be tough to, to come back. Uh, I think it's really going to depend on it's going to go two ways, right? It's, it's going to be that people are, are, are going to be a bit nervous about going out again, um, and then the restaurants and the bars aren't going to open up. It's Oregon being kind of a boutique, higher-end wine, that's kind of a larger part of, of the market, I think. Um, or it's going to go where people are going to go crazy and everyone's going to run out, <laughs> and, and wine is going to fly off the shelves. You know, um, um, it's going to, I think it's probably going to be the latter um, as well. It's going to be more like the Roaring, twi roaring Twenties than the... Than the in the yeah, in the depression. <laughs> I hope. Um, let's let's see. People have definitely saved up more money. Um, I think with the smoke and everything, and you know the smoke that might come. I think we have to work very closely on our marketing um, as well, not to to give this a bad vintage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's be a lot of competition for sale of rosé as as well. Um, and I don't know how that's going to change. If if there's if that's going to increase the amount of rosé being made um, here in the future, if they find, people find that they can sell it better and faster or, or not. Mm -hmm. um, it would definitely affect the uh, income per, per bottle as well. But yeah, I mean, um, 
otherwise, yeah, it's 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 going to be. I think it take a while for the industry to recover. And the general sector is people have have less money to go to a wine shop and, and buy a bottle of wine that cost eighty dollars. You know, um, mm -hmm. and that's that's where I think, especially wines from from Europe, even with the tax, now they're they're gonna they're still fairly fairly cheap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. That's just my, my opinion. I'm not a marketing <laughs> expert, so just what I, I, I read in reports and just looking. But I, I don't think, I mean, Oregon is such a good name and it's so small that it's, it's not going to, to die off. Mm -hmm. that's, that's for sure. California is going to have some problems, um, especially having been on fire the past four years. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're really going to have to rethink their, their, whole, their whole operating procedure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And speaking of fires, um, tell me about managing the fires at harvest last year, both for yourself as a, as a teacher and, and, oh. and as you're for yourself as a, as a vineyard manager and winemaker. We, we harvested in the smoke <laughs> um, at our, our little mini plot. We had some friends come from Portland to help, but they stayed for two hours. They're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, you know, like your lungs hurt, you know, and, and I, 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 I thought quite often about, about the people um, in the, in the vineyards, like the, the vineyard stewards, like having to be out there every day, you know, in this, in this toxic air, you know, and it really gave kind of like a feeling of panic, you know, like this is kind of a prim primal fear of like, you know, our, we have that flight response, you know, like fire, run, but like, we can't run anywhere, you know, like we can't drive anywhere for hundreds of miles, <laughs> it's all under smoke. Um, so I think that, that also, I mean, we're talking about biodynamics, that kind of brings in a little bit of tension, mm -hmm. a little bit of stress um, in, into, into, the, into the vines. Um, yeah, and a lot of people held, held off of, in terms of sugar accumulation, it basically froze for a week I mean, with no sun. I mean, it just stayed in 19 bricks and it just stopped. Uh, we lost some, some acid as well, um, which is important for us being a more higher acid driven wine region. Um, in terms of at school, we canceled class. Um, so all the measurements and the work um, were done by the winemaking instructor and myself. <laughs> going out there, um, taking all the measurements. And then, you know, when the students came, it was kind of a shame for them because it was, we just basically, within one week, took everything off the field. You know, so, so they missed out a, a little bit on, mm -hmm. on that. In the, in the industry, I think it's a lot of different responses and it was quite tough because uh, everyone's afraid of, of, of the smoke taint. Um, some people were trying to leave it longer, some people trying to harvest it earlier, trying to avoid it, people were making rosé. But what, what I found to be very, very sad is that we had a lot of cancellation of, of contracts or a lot of fruit that wasn't picked, not really based on any numbers, um, mostly because the, the labs were three or four weeks out, right? You, there's no way to, to tell, right? But I feel like if you're gonna cancel a contract, you, you need to, to do it all based off of something, right? And even if it's taking the hit and saying, all right, we'll pay for the cost to harvest it mm -hmm. at first, and then we'll see how it turns out and if there's smoke taint. Um, then we can discuss and mm -hmm. you know pay mm -hmm. half or nothing more. That that would have been a good solution, I, I think. Instead of this like we drop everything, mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of thing. And I, I don't know if that's gonna how that's gonna affect relationships between growers and and um, wineries mm -hmm. in the future. If there's gonna be less trust between them, I feel like it was very very trusting, relaxed environment before. Um, I'm not so sure if it's gonna be that way now. Mm -hmm. um, I hope so. <laughs> I hope things will go back to normal. But I, I think there's gonna be a little bit of a, all right, let's, let's make more detailed contracts between us mm -hmm. um, to, to kind of keep everyone, everyone feeling safe, mm -hmm. so, so to say. But yeah, it was, it, was a hard, it was a hard year, I think, for, 
for, for everyone, um, especially that, that lack of, of information and smoke being so site-specific. Some sites got it a lot, some hardly anything, you know, it's, it's really tough. In Chimekino, uh, our, our wine is okay, <laughs> we're working on it, you know, but, um, but still, yeah, I mean, the reds, the, the whites are, are still very, very good, mm -hmm. so it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's tough. Uh, for me, personally, I, I don't really have any smoking yet. Uh, <laughs> In the game, eh? Let's let's see let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I, I actually, I guess, was maybe one of the people who might have profited because I took the fruit that someone else rejected. <laughs> so I think, in terms of maybe smaller winemakers, where it's hard to get hold of something like organic game, kind of get a foot in the door mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so in that in that way, um, as bad as it all was, it did open up a little bit of opportunity for for some people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just one person. <laughs> just me, I don't know. But, um, but you know. I mean, it's funny you talk about contracts. I mean, like, it, it, the written idea of written contracts for wine grapes is so new to Oregon anyway. I mean, now they're going to have to actually, like, look at them a little bit more closely. It was handshakes for so long, right? So Yeah, the one we have at school is pretty funny. It just basically says, I will buy two tons of Pinot Noir. That's it. At this price. <laughs> it's one piece of paper with, like, four lines. And a signature, you know. <laughs> so, so it's, it's kind of it's kind of funny. So, what do you see? Uh, we've talked a little bit about the future already, but future for yourself. Um, so tell me about kind of what you're what you're seeing as you look five, ten years down the road for yourself. What, what's going to happen to your to your to your teaching and and to your business as you look ahead? And um, do you intend to be in the Oregon wine industry long term? Yeah, um, I think I I found my. So the, the place for this time of, of life, and uh, I feel like this is the last stage of my life. It sounds pretty depressing, you know, <laughs> but, but towards the, the end, you know, this is kind of like my, my third career, but um, I don't see myself, see myself changing. Um, and when I thought that before in development work, you know, I don't see myself changing out of this. That was, you know, 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. I don't see myself changing. I'm very happy with teaching as well, keeping that, that foot in the community and, and helping people to advance. I don't see myself at all um, leaving that, that position as well. Um, the nice thing with, with agriculture and viticulture is that things are always changing, you know, mm -hmm. so always learning. There's always something new to learn, always something new to teach. Um, it, it's not like we have to teach the same thing every year. And also every season is different, so having that teaching vineyard um, every year is going to be different. Mm -hmm. The teaching is going to basically um, be moved around according, accordingly, which keeps things, um, keeps things exciting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, yeah, I, I really enjoy it much more than I, than I thought I would. Um, hopefully um, at the end, you know, um, Human sellers will will pick up and and be able to to plant out all the the land that I that I have mm -hmm. and keep making wine and then eventually um, start with um, doing that that kind of hosting or what I'm say woofing for <laughs> woofing for people with PTSD <laughs> so to say and, and be able to to bring that that in um, mm -hmm. I still see that in maybe five six years down down the line it's going to be a long process and I'm not in a, in a hurry mm -hmm. um, as as well and to make mistakes. This past year, while for it was tough, um, it was probably one of the best years of my life. I mean, coming here, getting set up, starting King Wine, meeting my fiance, and just the um, incredible learning curve that I, I had here my first season um, in Oregon. First time getting used to the area to, mm -hmm. and to, to the way people farm here and, and all these different things. Um, and then all these little hiccups that, 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 that came in in terms of COVID and and smoke and all these different things. So mm -hmm. it's been nice. But the industry has been really helpful. Um, 
so we said briefly before we started, you know, the first person I, I met was Alan Holstein, who basically took me around and explained to me a lot about how things were done here and, and why. Mm -hmm. um, and that helped me a lot. And unfortunately, I, I kind of lost contact with him after COVID. Um, but hopefully once things open up, I'll be able to meet up with him again. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things that, that will keep me here. Um, and I don't see changing is that community, you know, the, the community of people being so, so open. Even though I'm not really deep in the community, I, I'm on the periphery, I still feel a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, that's very, um, very important, especially, you know, working in development so long, you're working to develop villages or you're working with 10,000 farmers, but you're not ever in that community. You know, you're always on the outside, mm -hmm. um, looking and not really contributing. And uh, this way it's, it's much nicer to, to be part of, of uh, what I've been doing in the past in a different way. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know you're fairly new to the industry here, obviously. Um, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon's wine industry? What, where is it going next? What, 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 what's coming in the future? And, and what are you maybe uh, excited about? And what are you maybe fearful of? Yeah, I, I think this expansion um, into organics biodynamics, I mean, I'm excited about that. There's more and more people picking that up um, as well. I think the Oregon wine industry is going to continue to grow. Um, and it's, it's still going to stick with Pinot Noir, but it's going to get better known for Chardonnay or mm -hmm. possibly Gamay or some other varieties um, as well. So I think that's a definite positive, that kind of diversification. You know, you have California, you have Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay, right? You have two grapes. Um, so it's also good for us to, to build that up. And it mm -hmm. seems like we're making great wine out of those grapes. Um, and there's a lot of potential to, to build that up or, or even other varieties. So that's quite, that's exciting as well. Um, and staying, staying like this, you know, I mean, this kind of mixed farm and farm vineyard environment um, really brings a lot, a lot to it as well in terms of tourism mm -hmm. and, um, and being so close to the mountains. I, I think it's just going to grow. It's going to grow in terms of tourism um, and it's probably grow in terms of vineyard acres planted as people plant higher. Mm -hmm. Looking for that cooler climate Pinot Noir, but I don't think it's ever going to get huge. Um, and that's, that's what I like about it as, mm -hmm. as well. There's, there's limited space to, to, to grow, which for grapes, which is which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, the the big fear that, that I have is basically the loss of would be a loss of community um, that, that I see from the outside. And as California or the other wine growing regions become a bit more stressed because of water or or smoke, um, they're going to be looking to diversify. And mm -hmm. it could be that they come up here. I mean, right now it's we're very very small, so it's kind of hard for a, a bigger company to take on like. A thousand acres, you know, you have to, to buy quite a few wineries to, to do that. Um, but but it, I think it will it will eventually happen. Will there'll be more and more moving up? I mean, some have already come, um, but I think more and more will will start to to come into the into the industry. And that would be the fear is to lose that that friendliness. That hey, you know, uh, can I borrow a tank? Or or hey, my tractor broke? Um, or can I borrow your implement? Or or hey, you know, I have this problem with my wine. What do you think? Um, mm -hmm. Um, I, I really think that that's, that's such a, a valuable part of what makes Oregon wine Oregon, and it would be really a shame to, to lose that, that kind of ethos that, that I think is one of the main reasons why the wine is so good here. Mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we started the interview off, you gave us kind of a, a brief history of, of wine's role in, in the world. I'm, I'm curious now, from your perspective, what role does wine play in society? Yeah, that's... Um, it's an interesting question as well, because that was something I also struggled with, you know, like, 
I go from working with poor farmers to try to grow rice so they can eat to making a luxury product that people, <laughs> people don't really need and some people are even afraid of, mm -hmm. so, to, so to say. Um, but I, I think wine's role in society being such a cultural thing, at least in, in our society, um, I don't think it's going to, to go away. It's such a celebratory thing, um, especially people have a nice occasion, um, good occasion, they have a nice bottle of wine. Even people who don't drink wine, if they go out for the anniversary, they order a bottle of wine. You know, um, so it's, it's deeply ingrained there. Um, it will definitely stay within the Catholic Church, I'm sure. Um, but that's a different, we can say, another level of quality of, of wine. Um, but I, I see its, its value is there. Its value is there um, culturally, if it's not nutritionally, um, so to speak. Um, we will have more battles as, um, like I say, the stigma around alcohol increases, right? Um, and, and drinking in, in moderation or small amounts mm -hmm. is that. But, um, but I still believe it has a, a role in society of bringing joy to people. Right? Bringing joy, complimenting um, other things, especially people who like to, to have a good meal and sit around. That's, that's the heart of every family, right? The heart of every family. Um, and when my main um, favorite holiday, Thanksgiving, you know, people come around, they eat, there's no expectation of presence. They eat, um, drink wine or beer and watch football. <laughs> it's that, that kind of nuclear, nuclear family uh, that, that I feel like wine has a, a heavy part of um, and that trickles out to, to so many other aspects of society and productivity and, and just living good life. I mean, I, I learned through my journey that money is not that important. Um, it's more about following your, your morals and your community that's, that's important in, in life and, and being happy, being happy in the moment and not hanging on too much in the past. Um, and not being too much in the future. And I think that wine is one of those things that, that both brings joy at the moment, but at the same time also brings back pleasant memories from, from the past um, as well, whether it might be a wine that you had before with good friends or, you know, or, or your family or a wedding or, or whatever, whatever happens. Um, and I think that has significant value that we've, we can't uh, underplay, so mm -hmm. to say, mm -hmm. or we can't play down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that will stay, will stay for, for a long time. And never know, again, maybe in, like in Texas, when the, they'll have to now boil water, they can just pour wine. <laughs> wine needed to sterilize the water, right? So maybe that, that role will come back. Wine, wine in every emergency kit. Yeah, wine in every, <laughs> wine in every emergency kit. Love it. So all the questions that I have for you, Brian, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, that, that was great. I really appreciate you reaching out to me, um, considering I'm so new here. Um, I, I was quite surprised, but, but um, quite thrilled um, to, to, to do that. And, and thank you for giving me actually a chance to, to get a lot of this, to, to put my, my life in, in order um, mm -hmm. and really think about how I'm going to, to tell the story and, and, and how everything has progressed for me. Um, and, and my journey um, and, re and recovery has been really, really nice. Um, I thought about it for weeks, to, to, to be honest. And um, in that, that was kind of therapeutic uh, as, as well. So. I'm really glad to hear that. That's, that's excellent. And you, and you told it really well. And, I, and it was a, such a fascinating story and, and meaningful story. So thank you so much for sharing it and the rest of your story and your, and your thoughts and perspectives. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more.
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.